Thank you for listening to the Calvary Church Podcast. If this ministry has been a blessing to you, would you let us know? Send an email to toledocalvary.org. We would love to hear what God is doing in your life today. You know, some days you just, you, you get done with the day and you're like, that was a good day. Like the things you did, the, 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 the things that happened, what you had a chance to be a part of. Has anybody liked the weather the last couple of days? Man, I'll tell you what, yesterday was beautiful. I did as much as I could outside. I, I, I studied my notes out on the deck. We ate dinner out there. I was at a friend's graduation party outside. I mean, I spent as much time outside as, as I could because we only have eight days like this all year, right? Isn't that kind of the, the way it seems? And so it's been wonderful. Some days you're just like, that was a good day. And then sometimes you have one of those days. Like a different kind of day. How's your day? Ah, it's one of those days where it seems like things just, nothing goes right. It seems like everybody or everything is against you. The world just doesn't seem to be going your way. What's funny is you can have a great day on Monday and you can have a crummy day on Tuesday. Isn't that true? Life comes with its highs and with its lows. Take your Bibles with me if you would please and turn to 1 Kings chapter 19. We're going to look at a story of a guy who goes through some highs and lows. We're going to kind of take a deep dive into this Old Testament story today. And we're going to look at a guy whose life is known as a hero in the Old Testament. Like when you look at him, he is bold. He is a man of God. He is fearless. He is prophetic. His life had great highs, but it also had some pretty low lows. And we're going to be honest today about the lows that he faced because we're in this series that we're calling The Voices in My Head. And we've been talking about our feelings and our thoughts and our emotions and how those things impact us in our lives. And we're going to look at some of that today because it seems that we consistently hear stories of people who are facing some really low seasons. Too often in the headlines, there's things about celebrities who take their own lives, people who, who are dealing with depression, seasons where maybe even you yourself find yourself in, in just a bit of a, a season where you say, I just, I just, I don't know what's going on. I just can't seem to get out of it. And the reality is it's hard to navigate sometimes the highs and the lows in life and it even happens to Christians. Some of you may need to hear that again. It even happens to Christians. So, so we're going to look at, at a guy named Elijah in a really low season of his life because as we look at this, it gives us a path for how to navigate those times when we're in the highs and lows and what we do in those places. <clears throat> so what I want to do is just real simply, we're going to walk through his story, kind of point out some things as we go through it, and then when we get to the end of it, what we see here in 1 Kings chapter 19. Then we're gonna take some time and look at about four observations, just some things to remember today. So let's jump right in. 1 Kings chapter 19, verse one. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. <clears throat> now, if you don't know this story, then you don't realize who some of these characters are. So let's just talk about them for just a minute and what, what's happened here. Elijah is the prophet. He is God's man. He is bold. He is fearless. He has seen all kinds of miracles that God has done in his life and through his life. And he is the one who is calling Israel back to worship the one true God because they've started to worship idols. They've started to worship false gods, which were known as, as the god Baal. And they were worshiping the Baal and the people behind this false worship were the godless king and queen. The king's name was Ahab. The queen's name was Jezebel. If you want to know what kind of a person Jezebel was, think about this. How many little girls have the name Jezebel? 
It's not many, is it? And if it's your name, we believe in second chances, right? That's, that's just kind of it's just kind of the way it goes. So Ahab gets back, and if, and if you read the first part of this, this book, you, you, you kind of get the feel for the whole story. But when Ahab gets back to Jezebel, it says he tells her everything that Elijah has done. What's that mean? Well, if you rewind this story about three years because of the, the idol worship that's happening, Elijah says to Ahab, the rain is going to stop. There's not going to be any more rain. So there's no rain for three years. If you're living in the desert of the Middle East, do you think that has an effect on you? These people are suffering. They're in a severe drought. For three years, there's no rain. At the end of this period, Elijah challenges the prophets of Baal. So Elijah is the prophet of the one true God. There are 400 prophets of Baal, and Elijah challenges them. He says, how about we have a little duel? You meet me up on Mount Carmel. Now, Mount Carmel is this incredible spot, not just in the nation of Israel for its view and things. In fact, we've got a picture of it that we can show you what it looks like when you're standing at Mount Carmel. But it's an incredible spot for its biblical history. In, in March of, of next year, March of 2020, we're going we're gonna to lead a group of, of folks from Calvary who are going to go to Israel. If you've, if you've never been or if you've always wanted to go, I would challenge you, don't, don't put it off. This is a great time to go. We're going to take a group. We're going to be led by Dr. Wave Nunnally. Some of you remember Dr. Nunnally. He was here about a year ago and, and spoke to us, and he's going to lead the group. You can get more information by stopping by the hub. It's not too late to sign up and be a part of that. <clears throat> but when you stand on Mount Carmel, like Dr. Nunnally will point out, and he'll show you just kind of spot after spot where Israel's history, biblical things happen. And it's such a cool trip because one, and this is the question people ask, is it safe? Yeah, it's safe to go. And you'll never read scripture the same after, after you've seen it for yourself. It changes that. And so when you, when you have that idea, here's Elijah, and here's the 400 prophets of Baal, and they meet up on Mount Carmel. And here's what Elijah says. Here's the rules to the little contest we're going to have. You bring your sacrifice, so they have an altar that they've built and an animal that they're going to sacrifice, and Elijah says, and I'll bring my sacrifice, and we'll both pray to our gods. You pray to your god, Baal, and I'll pray to the one true God, and whichever god sends fire and consumes the sacrifice is the real god. And they say, all right, we'll sign up for that. So they get up there, and Elijah says to them, all right, boys, you go first. I don't know that I'd have done that. I think I don't want it to go first just to shut them up, right? Anybody else? But Elijah knew better than that. He knew that he would let them go first because he knew they didn't have a real God. He knew they would have to get to a point of desperation to realize not that God is a way, but that he's the only way. And so you have these 400 prophets of Baal, and they begin to call out to their God who isn't there. And they go through all their exercises, all their spiritual gymnastics, and nothing's happening. They do this for hours. They get about halfway through the day, and Elijah, who's kind of still just hanging out there, starts taunting them. You know, maybe your God's not home. I wonder if you need to wake him up. Maybe he's sleeping. And these are all parts of the narrative of their, their history, their story, that he's throwing back in their face. And for hours, they call out to their God and nothing happens, even to the point that they start to physically hurt themselves to try to prove that, that, that they mean business with their God. And at some point, Elijah shifts gears and he calls for some water. Remember, it hasn't rained in three years. There's a drought. And Elijah says, bring some water up here on this mountain. 
and they pour it out on his sacrifice. If you want something to catch fire, do you pour water on it? (laughs) Pours water on his sacrifice. He prays a very simple prayer, and God sends fire from heaven and consumes his sacrifice in your face, right? (laughs) And then how it goes? So you know what they do because of the biblical principle, and this is kind of what was on the line here to prove whose God was the real God, because these were the false prophets, and if you follow the biblical narrative, you'll see why this wasn't barbaric. This was what was on the line at this time. It was a time of spiritual warfare, that these 400 prophets of Baal then are put to the sword. The people take them and execute them because their God is not the real God. Now that's good, for God and for his people, it's bad if you're Ahab and Jezebel, the king and queen, because those prophets were your team. Watch what happens, verse two. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow, I do not make your life like that of one of them. Did you hear what she said? Elijah. I'm coming for you. You killed my boys, I'm gonna kill you. Pretty pretty fearful thing for her to say. It's interesting that she would say that because not only when Elijah prayed to God did he send fire, but after that whole thing was over, he went back and prayed some more and then God sent rain. Do you see who Elijah is here? He's the one who calls down fire and he's a rainmaker. When he prays, God moves. And so here's Jezebel and she's rolling up here. Her power does not compare to God's and she's talking all this smack. If I was Elijah, I'd have said, go for it, girl. Bring it. <laughs> Verse three, maybe not. <laughs> Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. Men, any of you ever been scared of a woman? I have. (laughs) Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. And when he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. Wow. Even after all that he's seen God do, and Jezebel's power couldn't even compare to God's, that there was something in her evil influence, there was something in that moment, there was something of fear that just gripped Elijah in such a compelling way that it caused him to run for his life. The prophet, the fearless, the bold man of God took off and ran away because he was scared, literally scared to death, and forgot about his strength, which reminds us something that I think it's good for us to know. Our lowest lows often follow our highest highs. Isn't that true? Sometimes it seems like we go from the very best moments in life to some of our lowest moments in life. And sometimes we think that those two things are mutually exclusive when the reality is we can have them at the same time. And it's interesting how fear can work its way into our faith. Like we can believe God to do something great and work a miracle and then we get all bent out of shape because we get stopped by a train. We can ask some, uh, God to heal someone and then we get scared when we get the sniffles. And there's times when we forget that God is at work in our lives. Some of you may need to think about the fear that comes into your life and actually embrace some of it today because what we do so many times is exactly what Elijah does here. He lets the fear come in and when he does, it puts him in a place where he runs and he withdraws and it appears that our hero, the bold man of God, is not only filled with fear, but I wanna challenge you with a thought. When you read this story, what you see is that he's actually dealing with depression here. 
Like he slips into almost a depressed state at this point in his life. And so many times all we look at in scripture is the good stuff in somebody's life. And we need to be reminded that there's, there's challenges we face too. He's filled with fear and so he runs and he withdraws because fear is a powerful motivator. Fear has a power to, to conflict us and confront us. And if you think about it, there's really not that much difference between fear and faith. If you think about it, what's the difference? Faith is when we believe that God is going to do something good. Fear is when we believe that something bad is going to happen. Faith is the belief in something good. Fear is the belief in something bad. Isn't that true? So the reality is they're they're both kind of different sides of the same coin in our hearts. And we need to see what happens here is that Elijah, a person of great faith, also gives in to great fear. And when he does, then he isolates himself. He pulls himself away because it says that when he gets to Beersheba, which is kind of the, the, the southern edge of Israel in that time, he sends his servant off. It's like Batman getting rid of Robin, right? And he says, he says I'm just gonna go by myself because so many times when we feel like we're alone, we make ourselves alone. Like we withdraw and we isolate ourselves. We do that with our spouses. We, we do it in our moods. We push away those close to us, and oftentimes we even withdraw from God. Watch what happens next, verse four. While he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, he came to a broom bush and sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. He's ran, he's withdrawn, he's isolated, he's lonely, and now he's in complete despair in this place. He prays that he might die. He says, Lord, I want you to take my life. Let's just be honest, and this might shock some of you, but this is a hero in the Bible who's having suicidal thoughts. Like if we're honest, there are people in the Bible who lose the will to live. And isn't the irony of this interesting? Why is Elijah running in the first place? He's running for his life so Jezebel doesn't kill him. And then he gets to this point, throws his arms up in the air and says, God, kill me. (laughs) It doesn't make any sense. But it's because he's in such a place of despair. He's hopeless. When he says, I'm no better than my ancestors, what he means is I've got no future. I've got nothing left to give. I've lost all hope. And when we lose sight of hope, we become hopeless. When life doesn't make sense, we may not see the sense in living. And that happens to us in our lives if we're honest at times. So so let's talk about this for for just a minute because there can be a real stigma in our society to talking about mental health. But it's okay for us to talk about. It's good for us to break the stigma and to break the silence. And I think it's important for us to talk about it in the church. And here's why. Because sometimes we wrestle with our thoughts, with feelings, emotions. We find ourselves in a dark place. And the answer that we give to people or the thing that we put on ourselves is, well, you just need to pray more. Or you just need to read your Bible more. Maybe if you go to church or if you would volunteer, or if you just change your thinking. And we've looked at a lot of biblical principles over these last few weeks as we've talked about our thoughts and our feelings and our emotions and I've been a little concerned that some of you might, might think that we're minimizing some of these things because some of you know depression. You know crippling fear. 
You know anxiety. You know what it's like to have a a deep sadness or a grief that just won't let go of its grip on you. And sometimes what people say to us, and, and even in the church, they'll say, well, you just need to get yourself together. And yet we find ourselves in a struggle with mental illness with someone we love or in our family or even in our own lives. And the truth is that if if you want to experience healing, healing starts when you bring something out into the light. Isn't that true? Because until it's out there to be able to be addressed, you'll never move forward into a place of healing. And, And what we find is for many of us, we can find ourselves in a place where we wrestle with sadness or with fear or with oppressive thoughts or with depression, even to the point of suicide. And, and I just want to speak into this for, for some folks today. Look, if you've questioned your, your will to live or the need for your life, can I tell you there is hope and you have a reason to live, even if you don't feel it today. Even if you wonder what good is my life, I can tell you based on God's word and based on the things that I know that your life has purpose and it has meaning and you have a reason to live. And if you don't believe that, let us believe in it for you today. And let us stand with you. And understand this, that just because you're a Christian, it does not mean that you're not human. I might say that again, actually. (laughs) Just because you're a Christian, it doesn't mean that you're not human. The reality is we can experience great success and still feel like a failure. Isn't that true? And just because you may be wrestling with something in your life, it doesn't mean that you're not a person of faith. What it means is that you're a person And some of you may be in a place where where your highs have been traded for lows, and you need to know today that God hears you, that we hear you, and that we're here for you. Because however however you define depression, the reality is that, that the frequency of it and the disruption that it brings to normal life is just staggering. The World Health Organization has named depression the second most common cause of disability worldwide after cardiovascular disease. In the United States, five to 10% of adults currently experience the symptoms of major depression. Up to 25% of all people will at some point meet the diagnostic criteria of depression during their lifetime. At any given time, about 15% of the American population is on medication for some form of of, uh, depression or mental illness. And the reality is when you start playing those numbers out, and I saw this and I thought this was interesting, it said in a congregation, in in a group of 200, which is about what we have in this room right now, 50 people will experience severe depression at some point in their lives, and at least 30 are currently on some kind of medication to work through that process. The reality is, as much as we might not wanna talk about these things, it's a real thing, is it not? So what is depression? Like depression isn't actually just one thing. It has as many forms and that general term covers a lot of different topics and, and it's different in what it does to different people. Some things can trigger that in our lives. It might be a traumatic event. It might be something physically in our body. It, it could be the end of a relationship. It could be a major life change. It could be retirement or a loss of some kind. We also know that some people are, are more prone to depression than others. I kind of feel that's probably true about Elijah in this passage. There's external factors, there's internal factors, there's chemicals in our brain, there's instances from our childhood, there, there's, there's different things that come our way. What's interesting is we use that word a lot. We might say that something is depressing or that we're depressed. You, you might say, oh, this weather is so depressing or I'm really depressed about my job. We mean miserable or fed up or sad. 
But this goes a whole lot deeper than that. It's much more than just emotion. When people say they are depressed, it hits us in a whole different way. It comes with symptoms like a depressed mood where you lose interest and pleasure in things. It comes with worthlessness and guilt where you think negatively about things, where you lose hope for the future. It can come with a change in appetite, disrupted sleep patterns, low energy levels, poor concentration. Depression is lonely. Puts you in a place where you're isolated and you feel cut off from others. It affects your relationship, your ability to cope, how you have conversations with others. It affects your relationship with God. And it's bewildering. Oftentimes, if you find yourself in this place, you, you, don't, you don't know how to describe it. You don't know what to say about it. And words don't seem to convey it. Winston Churchill, who was the great British spokesman and leader in, in World War II, if anybody knew how to use words, it was Winston Churchill. And when he would talk about the depression that he would experience, he would refer to it as the black dog, like, like that creature that just kind of comes in the room at some point. And the reason we talk about it is because it's common and it's debilitating, and there's hope even in the midst of it. And you might go, Chad, why'd you take so much time to talk about this? Because there are a lot of people who need to know that they're not alone when they experience those things. And a lot of us need to know that when someone is going through a tough time, this is a real thing that they're facing, and they need us to come alongside of them. And if you're experiencing some of those things, don't just say, hey, look, I'm all right. I'm going to be okay. I can handle it. It's okay for you to seek help. It's okay for you to talk to somebody. Sometimes people go, well, if I, if I go and talk with a counselor, if I say something to my doctor, it just means I'm weak. It doesn't mean you're weak. It means you want to be strong. It means you want to take those steps forward. So if you need to see a counselor, if you need to talk to your doctor, if, if you need to be uh, considering medication, there's nothing wrong with those things. What's wrong is when we isolate ourselves and put us in a place where we're an easy target for the enemy, which is where Elijah found himself. Verse five, then Elijah lay down under the bush and fell asleep. What do you do when you're stressed? Any of you ever want to take a nap? It's right there in the Bible. We're allowed to take naps. Can I get an amen? Like, that's awesome. It's also there in the Bible that sometimes what's really important is that you get some physical rest. Verse five. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. And he looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. Isn't God good? Because there's Elijah under this tree, desperate in the wilderness, and God just kind of sends a messenger to kind of reach down and say, hey, Elijah, I got something for you. If I was God, you know what I would have done? I wouldn't have touched him. I'd have kicked him. Hey, rainmaker. Hey, fire caller. Get up, coward. What are you doing here? Not God. God sees where he's at. And very gently says, hey, buddy, I got a little something for you. And off over there to the side was bread baked over hot coals. As I was, as I was getting ready for this message, I listened to a sermon by a pastor named Erwin McManus where he really does a masterful job of walking through this passage of Scripture. And he points something out that I really liked. He said, if you think about this, God loves us enough to know that there are times when physically what we need is nourishment. We need to take care of our bodies. And he points out how interesting it is that what God brought to him was bread 
over hot coals. Add a little marinara (laughs) and some cheese and some pepperoni. You got pizza. (laughs) Take that same same bread, put a little hole in it, sprinkle it with, with sugar and cinnamon. Donuts, right? Don't you dare tell me not to eat carbs when I'm stressed. It's in the Bible. It's right here. And God will take care of you. Verse 7. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat. He's exhausted, right? Get up and eat. For the journey's too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank and strengthened by the food. He traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. Horeb is another name for a place that we know in the Bible sometimes as Sinai, Mount Sinai, which is the place where when Moses met with God, God showed himself, revealed himself to Moses there. It was there that God gave Moses the law, the Ten Commandments. You remember that from the book of Exodus? So like this is a really important place, significant place. So he gets there and he goes into this cave to spend the night. Verse nine, and the word of the Lord came to him what are you doing here, Elijah? Wasn't that an interesting question? Do you think God didn't know the answer? <laughs> like, you remember when we started this series, we talked about Adam and Eve in the garden when they were hiding from God, and God strolls into the garden, and he says, where are you? Did God ask that because he didn't know where they were? <laughs> no, when God asks a question, it's not because he needs an answer, it's because we need an answer. There's something he wants us to see here. And so he says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he may be asking that to some of you today, like, like in the pressure and the stress and, and the anxiety, maybe even the depression that you felt at times, when you feel like all this is, is, like, is like welled up, it's like dammed up inside of you and, and, it, and, it, and it can't come out and you've lost perspective and God has to stop you for a moment and say, hey, what are you doing here? Like, like what's really going on here? And God asks him this question and Elijah is more than willing to give him an answer. Verse 10. Elijah replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've torn down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. God looked at him and said, well, I didn't know that. (laughs) You think God knew that? That's That's pretty high maintenance there. Elijah, if you think about it, it sounds like a pity party to me. You know how I know that? Because I've thrown a lot of those parties. Anybody else? He blames the Israelites. He blames the bad guys. He says, woe is me. I'm the only one who has the act together here. Do you notice that nowhere does he mention God? Like nowhere does he say, God, look at what they've done. Or God, would you do something? Or God, would you help us? His focus is on everything but God, which is typically what happens when we retreat into ourselves. So what does God do? Verse 11, the Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Elijah, I got something I want to show you. I I don't want to minimize at all the fact that if you've known severe anxiety or depression or fear, if some of these things we've talked about today are real in your life, they're very real in your life, but can I also tell you what is very real, and it's the presence of God. And God's presence can change things. And he knows that. That's why he calls Elijah to experience it. Verse 11. 
Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. Doesn't that sound like quite a show? <laughs> like you've got the mighty wind, you've got the earthquake, you've got the fire. That's quite a show. That would be better than an earth, wind, and fire concert, wouldn't it? I mean, you got all this. You're welcome. You got all this kind of happening here. Spectacular stuff. Fire's nothing new. Elijah's seen that called down before. Like you've got all this that's happening right here. What's interesting though is that in none of it is God there, right? Because it says there's all this spectacular. I bet Elijah had gotten a little hungry for the spectacular, right? That he expected whenever God would show up, it would have the, the rain coming out of nowhere or the fire coming down from heaven. He might have even gotten a little prideful so that when he experienced the day-to-day -day in the ordinary, it was actually a little more overwhelming, Verse 12, and after the fire came a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. I, I like how the King James Version calls that gentle whisper a still small voice. The, the Hebrew has this idea of a thin whisper because God was saying, Hey, Elijah, I'm not trying to impress you. I'm not trying to show you the spectacular. I just want you to know that I'm right here with you. I'm, I'm so close that you can hear me whisper. And that's where God was. And I don't know where you are. I don't know what you're facing. I don't, I don't know if you're in a really high season in your life or maybe you're in the lowest of lows, but just know this, when you're looking for God in the spectacular, he's right there with you in the little whisper. Back in 2007, and I, I don't know how, it, like I don't know what the trigger was, but I can take you back to an exact place and date when, when Winston Churchill's black dog just walked into, into my life. Like, and there was this heaviness and like almost this, this like darkness that filled my head for quite a few months. I can remember driving down the road one day and just this heaviness to go, I don't think I'll ever be the same again. Like, I'm just not right. And I didn't have joy and I didn't have peace and I had this constant sense of like, like dread and this went on for months. I remember the Christmas that year, not, not due to any external things around me, but internally inside of me, what a dreary, miserable Christmas that was. And I remember kind of going through the process of walking through that season and, and watching what God was doing in my life and at times feeling like God was so distant and not having answers to that and him eventually helping me get through that season and find joy again and kind of move on to a new place. And it was interesting because when I got on the other side of it, what I could not see at that time but could see afterwards was just how close Jesus was to me that whole time. That in that whole time when I felt so far from him, I needed to be reminded that he was as close to me that I could hear him whisper my name. God is with you. Even in the midst of your lowest low. Verse 13. And then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? You heard that question before? <laughs> he asked it again. I think he asked it again because once you experience the presence of God, it changes you, doesn't it? So he asked the exact same question again. What are you doing here, 
Elijah, I think his tone of voice was probably a little different. And then Elijah answered, verse 14. He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant and they've torn down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword and I'm the only one left. Now they're trying to kill me too. When when I studied this passage, it was interesting because a lot of commentators want to say that because Elijah gave the exact same answer again, that he was just dense and didn't get it that he missed out on what God was trying to say to him, that he was so far gone that he missed that God was trying to communicate. And I don't agree with that. When I was a kid, grew up in a a little neighborhood where there were like four or five kids that were about the guys that were about the same age that I was. And we used to play together all the time. And right next door to, to our house, my cousin lived there. And you know that nobody fights like family. Isn't that true? And so just about every other day, we got in a fight. I mean, not just like, you know, like, it was a doozy, right? <laughs> and I can remember going in the house and looking for my mom and being so mad and finding her and being like, mom, it's just not right. And he's mean and it's not fair. And I'd be mad. And what I meant was, mom, go beat him up. And you never did. <laughs> Which was probably wise. Sometimes, though, I wasn't angry. Sometimes when I went in, I used the exact same words. I wasn't angry, but I was broken. And I said, Mom, it's just not right. He's so mean, and it's just not fair. And I didn't want her to beat him up. I wanted her to hug me and let me know that I was loved. Same words, right? Totally different emotion. It wasn't anger. It was brokenness. When Elijah says this this time, I don't think he's having a pity party. I think he's saying, God, I need you to be so close to me that I can hear you whisper. Watch what God says. Verse 15. The Lord said to him, go back the way you came, Elijah. Get this. When he says, go back the way you came, he's not saying to him, hey, move along and get out of here. You know what he's saying? He's saying, Elijah, I believe in you. I have something I need you to do. I know you've been filled with fear. I know you've made mistakes. I know you think that maybe you've gone too far. But guess what, Elijah? I want you to go back the way you came. You go to the desert of Damascus. And when you get there, you anoint Haziel king over Aram. And also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel-Meholah to succeed you as prophet. And Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Haziel. And Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. And you say, what does that mean? Right, because we don't know all the story, but I can tell you what this means. What it means is he's saying, Elijah, you know everything you've been so upset about? I'm going to set it right. I'm going to make it straight, and you're going to do it. Because I've not given up on you, buddy. And you know what else? Look at verse 18. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. You feel like you're on your own, Big E? (laughs) That's what God called him. You feel like you're on your own, Big E? But I'm right here with you, buddy. You're not alone there's at least 7,000 others that are on your team as well. Isn't that a story? Let me show you four things that hit me as I walk through this. Four things, four observations from Elijah's highs and lows. Here's the first one. Number one, life for all of us comes with highs and lows. It'll catch us off guard if you don't know it. It's just a reality of how we live. Our greatest victories are often followed by crushing defeat, 
Fear can cause us to, to think things and do things that we never thought we would. And even the most spiritual of us can experience despair and depression because life for all of us is filled at times with highs and lows. And some of you need to hear that because you've been so down on yourself because you've been so low. And it's good for you to know that sometimes, even for the most bold of godly people, life comes with highs and lows. Second observation that's good to see here, that God is with you in your meekest, weakest moments. God is with you in your weakest moments. Fire maker, rain caller, man of God, Elijah, hiding under a tree in the desert. Looks like a coward. And yet God shows up and sends him a messenger so he knows he's loved. And God let him get some rest. God even delivered a pizza, didn't he? Isn't that awesome? <laughs> and then, miraculously, through a still small voice, he says, Elijah, I'm right here with you. God is with you in your weakest moments. And in that moment, you know it's what he whispers? Number three, that God will use you in your brokenness. God will use you in your brokenness. Elijah, I got a plan for your life. And I know things are desperate right now, but that's, that's because I'm preparing something for you. You can't understand it right now, but it's out there. And in your brokenness, as you look to me, I am doing something that only I can do. So Elijah, don't you dare give up. Your life has purpose and your life has meaning and it might take a journey to get there, but you trust me, I'm doing something. Second Corinthians chapter 12, verse nine, Paul says, but Jesus said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That's why for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and in insults and in hardships and persecutions, and difficulties. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. In your weakness, he's with you. In your brokenness, he has a purpose for your life. Fourth thing, last thing that I want you to see, you are not alone. God is with you. And if you don't believe it, he proved it by sending his son Jesus for you. In fact, we're, we're gonna enter into a time of communion today here in just a moment. I'm gonna invite our ushers and hospitality team folks that are gonna help us to serve communion to go ahead and I know you need to step out and help us to get set up and we so appreciate your service. It's interesting because Elijah was convinced that he was the only one and God had to say to him, Elijah, I got 7,000 more. Look, buddy, in your isolation, you need to know this. You are not alone. And that's why when God sent Jesus, his son, for us, he gave him the name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Jesus came so that you would know and experience his presence. You are not alone. And when you look for him in the spectacular, you miss it because he's as close as a whisper. He wants you to know he loves you. 
That's why God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for us. He died on the cross to pay the price for our sins so that he could be our savior. And then he rose from the grave and he lives today so that we could put our trust and our confidence in him. Our life can find purpose in him because he is our Lord. And when we find him as our savior and our Lord, then our lives find purpose. And he's with us, not just in the highest of highs, but he's with us in the lowest of lows. And part of the challenge is this, that when life comes at us fast, and it does, and when you have not just good days, but some of those days, And when you get to the lowest of lows and that fear and that anxiety, and it's been interesting, the number of people that have come up to me today, this is is fascinating, who have just said to me, hey, thanks, I needed that. Like what we've talked about today, people that you would look at on the outside and you would go, they've got it all together or they're super strong or their life must be, and they're better looking than I am and they're smarter than I am. They got more money than I have. And they're looking and they're saying, hey, I needed to hear that. Here's the reason why. Because all of us have highs and all of us have lows. And in those moments, what happens so many times is we take the fear and we take the depression and we take the anxiety and it builds up inside of us to the point that it's like it's, it's, like it's dammed up there inside of us and, it, and it's busting to want to try to get out. And we forget that there's something underneath all of that, that God's at work in our lives and we miss it because we, don't, we, can't, we can't comprehend how do we get from where we are to where God wants us to be. And that's why he sent Jesus There's a lake in Tennessee that years ago was not near as deep as it is now, but but they built a dam for whatever reason, and when they did, the the water levels in that lake went shot way up, right? Back in 2008, they had to drain the lake, like first time in in 60 years that they brought the water level down, and most people had forgotten, but then realized when, when this happened, that when they brought the water level back down, they had forgotten that before it went up, there had been a bridge that went across this lake and had been buried, hidden under the water for these 60 years. And it was, it was powerful because when they got down there, the bridge was largely intact. Like the guardrails were all good. They kind of checked it. The decking, the, like the floor of the bridge was strong. They could have driven a truck across it. Like it was really constructed well and it was preserved and kind of held up that whole time over those whole 60 years. And that bridge was there to get them from one side to the other. And some of you have had so much damned up inside of you, right? That it's covered over the fact that Jesus has been there the whole time to help you to get from where you are to where God wants you to be. He's the bridge that connects us to God and his love and his plan for your life. And at some point, you gotta drain some of that away and say, Jesus, I'm just gonna look to you. That's that's why we come to this this moment of, of communion today. We come to the Lord's table because the whole reason that Jesus came and died for us is so that we would know him as our savior and our Lord. And so in these next few moments, we're gonna remember I'm gonna invite the ushers to come at this time as we prepare to serve. When when Paul gave us instructions for communion, he said that whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. That everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. Here's, Here's what I'm gonna ask you to do in these next few moments. If you need to know Jesus as your Savior who forgives you and as your Lord who gives you purpose, would you look to him? And maybe just simply say, Jesus, I give you my life. I put my trust in you. And allow him to to bring that gentle whisper to you. Maybe you need to hear that still small voice. That's been our prayer, that through this time of communion, you'll hear God saying to you, I'm right there with you. 
In a moment, the ushers will distribute the elements. The, the bread represents the broken body of Jesus Christ, and the cup represents his shed blood. We ask that you hold on to it until everyone's been served, and then we'll all share in it together. But in these next few moments, would you open up your heart to hear from God and examine yourself and say, Jesus, I need you in my life. Father, we thank you for this moment of communion. Lord, we thank you for this reminder of what you've done for us. Lord, some of us need to hear a still small voice from you today. Would you remind us of your great love and that we're never alone? In Jesus' name. Amen. Ushers, you may serve. Thank you for the cross, Lord. Thank you for the price you paid. Bearing all my sin and shame in
also passed on to you that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and when he'd given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me Father we thank you for this bread it's a reminder of your great love that you loved us so much while we were still sinners Jesus died for us Lord, some of us in a, in a low place today need to be reminded of your forgiveness, that there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus, that our guilt and shame, the price has been paid because of what Jesus did on the cross. We thank you for this today. In Jesus' name. Let's share in the bread together. same way after supper he took the cup saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes Father we thank you for the cup it represents the shed blood of Jesus and it's because Jesus shed his blood that there's life available to us and there's forgiveness available to us and there's healing available to us. Father, there's, there's some that are here in this room or they're hearing this message and you're reminding them that you have life and forgiveness and healing for them. Right now, not in any way that's spectacular, but just with your still small voice, you're gently whispering to them, you're not alone. And I'm right here with you. We thank you for your sacrifice. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's share in the cup together. And Lord, thanks for your word. It challenges us and reminds us that even in the highs and lows of life, we are never alone. In our weakness, you're with us. In our brokenness, you use us. And so we put our trust in you. Now, Lord, as we go from here, would you go with us? Send us out with your special favor and with your wonderful peace. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for being here today. Have a great week. See you next Sunday.